Good morning. We have another beautiful morning to be together and worship the Lord. And glad that you're here to be a part of it. And uh, we had a great day last week, didn't we? A uh, wonderful time last uh, Sunday. And uh, so many who came to be uh, our special guests. And some have returned today. And we're thankful for that, uh, especially. And we appreciate everybody who uh, work so diligently to uh, be able to bring all of that about. But we're glad you're here today and glad we have the opportunity to look at the third chapter of the book of Daniel this morning. Just before the people of Israel went into the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness, here's what Moses said to them. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. So the people of Israel were forever after forbidden to make any kind of image, even of God himself or of anything else that might lead them away from the worship of the true God. They just were not ever to do it, and for the most part, they didn't. But what if somebody else makes the image? What if somebody else makes the image and wants you to bow to it? What if, what if the idol maker is someone who has power over you and threatens you with that power if you don't do what they want you to do? and bow to the gods that they have made. That's what the third chapter of Daniel is about. It's another of Daniel's survival stories, teaching Israel and teaching us how to survive as a faithful people and to be a minority of faith. The very first verse of chapter 3 shows us that while Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with Daniel's God in chapter 2, remember that Daniel had not only told the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but had been able to tell him the dream itself. And Nebuchadnezzar had praised God because of that. And we're cautioned, though, not to think that he was converted because he was not. Uh, he was impressed, but he was far from converted. He's still a pagan at heart because chapter 3 and verse 1 says that he set up an enormous image of gold on the plain of Dura and wanted everyone to bow down to it. Now we wonder why did he do that after having some insight into the nature of the God of Israel? Well, it may have been an arrogant reaction to what Daniel had said to him after the interpretation of his dream when he said, you are the head of gold. And maybe Nebuchadnezzar got to thinking about that and thought, head nothing, I'm the whole thing. And just had the whole gold image made to represent himself. And also the fact that Daniel had said in the interpretation, there will be kingdoms after yours which is simply saying to Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's not going to last. Your kingdom is not going to stand. And this may have been his futile attempt to set up a, an, an image of himself or whatever that was going to, he thought might last, that he thought might be permanent in spite of what Daniel had said. But this image, the Bible says, was 60 cubits high and 60, or six cubits wide, 90 feet high by nine feet wide. That's kind of a tall, skinny monument when you start thinking about it. 
but we don't really know what it was. It's not clear. Now, for comparison's sake, the, uh, the statue of Robert E. Lee down on Monument Avenue is 60 feet. So what Nebuchadnezzar set up was half again as high as that. That's a, that's a big monument or a big idol. And it's not clear what it was. Was it an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Was it a, a statue of the uh, Babylonian god Baal? or one of their other gods, or was it supposed to represent the spirit of Babylon or something like that? We really don't know. The text doesn't say, and it really doesn't matter. What matters is what it stood for. And what it stood for was Nebuchadnezzar's arrogant assumption that he could create an object of worship and then make everybody else worship it. He thought he could do that. That's how powerful he thought that he was. And so he held a huge dedication ceremony, the next few verses tell us. And he had all of the government officials of Babylon gathered there. And the indication is from the proclamation that he had everybody else gathered there too, but especially he wanted the government officials there, uh, and he wanted these uh, Chaldeans and these magicians and these sorcerers and all these people there. And he issued this decree that anybody who did not bow down and worship this image when they heard the music. He had an orchestra there. The whole thing, this is a big deal. That anybody who didn't bow down when they heard the sound of that music was going to be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. We've already learned about Nebuchadnezzar that he never played softball, did he? He's always playing hardball. It's always an either my way or worse than the highway. Either my way or you're going to be destroyed in a terrible way. He likes to tear people limb from limb and throw them in lion's dens and put them in furnaces. And now he's saying, if you don't bow to this image, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so this becomes a test of loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar. I doubt that he was really thinking that people were going to believe in that statue. But bowing to it indicated a test of loyalty to himself. And there was absolutely no room for compliance. And so everybody did just what he said when the music played. They just all bowed down. All but three. And three were Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Now, you notice nothing said about Daniel here. I wonder why that is. Maybe he wasn't there. I, I don't know why he isn't mentioned in, in this account, but, but he isn't. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not bow down. Now, remember from chapter 1 that Daniel and his three friends had already proven themselves far above average by God's blessing and by his grace that uh, when they went into the uh, University of Babylon for that advanced training in all of the wisdom of the Babylonians and the Babylonian language and everything else, they had proven themselves to be far superior to the others. And you know what happens when people are like that? Other folks get jealous, don't they? Then at the end of chapter 2, when Daniel is able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar promotes Daniel to the number two spot in the kingdom, but he also, because Daniel asked him to, he promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to very high positions in the administration. And once again, you know what happens when that happens. Somebody's going to get jealous. 
And that's exactly what happened. Uh, some of these Chaldeans, some of these astrologers, some of these uh, sorcerers, these uh, magicians, went to Nebuchadnezzar and said, there are certain Jews whom you have promoted in the kingdom. Notice that. Certain Jews, notice the prejudice involved there, whom you have promoted in the kingdom. They're really touchy about that. And they don't bow down the way that you have commanded. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, well, we'll see about that. And he has them brought before him. Now, I suspect the only reason that he gave them a second chance is because they were valuable to him. They must have been really good at what they did. They must have been very, very capable, very effective in his administration. Or Otherwise, why wouldn't he have just had them immediately thrown into the furnace? But he didn't. He had them brought before him, and he said, is this true that you won't bow down? And they said, yes, that's, that's true. Uh, and he said, look, I'm going to give you one more chance. And if you don't bow down, then you're going to be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And he added this blasphemous note in verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? You know, if Nebuchadnezzar could have had a conversation with Pharaoh in the time of, of Moses, he would have known not to ask that. Because you remember how in, in Exodus 5 and verse 2, when Moses and Aaron came before Pharaoh and says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. And you remember what Pharaoh said? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord and I will not obey him. Well, before the story is over, he finds out who the Lord is. He finds out what Nebuchadnezzar is about to find out. That's a very dangerous question to ask with that attitude of who is the Lord. And he is going to find out. Well, he makes his threat again, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't intimidated, not in the least. First of all, in verse 16, they said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. I really admire that, don't you? What are they saying there? They're saying, this isn't up for discussion. This really isn't up for discussion. We have no need to answer you uh, in this matter. Now, we learned as far back as chapter 1 that they, along with Daniel, had already made up their minds that no matter what happened, they were going to be faithful to God. You remember that? They were going to be faithful to God. This is not a spur-of-the-moment decision. They had decided when they first became captives in Babylon that they were going to remain faithful to God. That's why they didn't eat the king's food and drink his wine and all that other stuff back in chapter 1. And so they said, there's no need to discuss this uh, with you. They are just acting in character now by saying there is no need to discuss this. And what an important lesson that is. Listen to me. If you are not if you are not faithful to God now, you won't be when the heat is on. You know that? Some people, I think, think they will, that they can just kind of rock along, you know, and kind of be neither here nor there where God is concerned and sort of faithful and sort of not. And then when the heat's on, I'll get strong. No. If you won't be faithful when the heat isn't on, you will, you will not be faithful when it is. 
Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are acting in character when they say what they did, and they make this amazing statement of faith. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king. They have no question about that in their minds, no question about what God is able to do, no question about his ability. And they boldly declare that to Nebuchadnezzar. He is able. You ask the question, who is the God who is able to deliver you out of my hand? Our God is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king. There's no question about the Lord's ability. But then what they added to it is even a stronger statement of faith. But if not... If he doesn't deliver us out of your hand, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. What a powerful statement that is. They're saying on the one hand, we know that God is able. We know what God can do. We know what God did for Daniel. And we know he can do it for us. But even if he chooses not to, we're not going to bow down to that image. We're not going to bow down to that image. You see, their faith was based not on what God might do. It was based on what God had already said. It's not about what God is going to do. It's about what are they going to do in response to what God has said about not bowing to any other God. They will not violate his word. That is a key to living faithfully. You see, faith, faith isn't about knowing what God will do. It's about obeying what God has said for us to do. And it's about trusting him, whether he decides to deliver us out of that trial or not. It's about trusting that whatever he has in mind, it's the best thing. It's the best thing. Isn't that what Jesus taught us when he prayed in Gethsemane? Not my will, but thine be done. Father, I know you can. I know you can change this. I know you can save me from the cross. But if it's your will for me to go there, then I'm ready to go. That's real faith. It would, not be, it would not be the purest kind of faith if we said, I'm going to stand firm for God because he guarantees he'll get me out of this. It's the deepest kind of faith when you say, I don't know whether he will or not, but I'm going to be faithful to him anyway. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was furious. When they said that, he wasn't about to tolerate disobedience from these foreign slaves who worshiped this strange God, no matter how highly he had promoted them and how valuable they were in his administration. And just to show how irrational he was and how furious he was, he had the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Now think about that. If the furnace as usual would have killed them, what is heating it seven times hotter going to do? You may have seen the 2010 movie True Grit. You remember that scene where Rooster Cogburn and Matty Ross are on the trail looking for Tom Chaney? And they come across this guy who's been hung by someone, and he's been hung like 25 feet in the air. And 
They look up at him and Maddie says, why do you suppose they hung him up so high? And Rooster says, I suppose on the theory that it would make him more dead. <laughs> That's kind of what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. I suppose on the theory that it will make them more dead, more punished. He has the furnace heated hotter, uh, seven times hotter than normal. So hot that when the men who were going to throw them in opened the door, the blast, the heat of the furnace kill the men who were throwing them in as they were doing so. And then Nebuchadnezzar looked in, I suppose, to see them writhing in agony, but instead he saw them not burned up at all. Instead he saw somebody else in there. And he was really perplexed by that, and he asked the people around him, didn't we just put three in there? They said, yes. And he said, then, then I, what's this fourth one I see? I see a fourth man in there. And his appearance is like a son of the gods, he says. Now, there's been a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, about who or what Nebuchadnezzar saw in that furnace. Who was that in there with Shadrach, Meshach? And Abednego, someone like a son of the gods. Some say that's Jesus, and some translations even change the wording here to say the son of God. And, and this may have been a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus to some of God's faithful people. I don't know. But the text doesn't say the son of God. It says a son of the gods. But still, it could have been, it could have been Jesus in there with them. Others say, no, it's an angel of the Lord, like those who appeared in human form to Abraham and in others, and that's also possible. But regardless of the form that was being taken, it's clear that God was with them in that furnace. God was there with them. He was not going to leave them alone in that experience. And I suspect that would have been true even if they had died. They would have died with God with them. Reflecting the words of Isaiah 43, 1 to 3. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my holy name, and you are mine. If you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God was with them, no matter who or what they saw. And so Nebuchadnezzar called them to come out. And they did. Notice the fourth man did not come out. But the three men did come out. And Nebuchadnezzar and all his nobles with him saw that they were completely unharmed by the fire. They didn't even smell like fire. Didn't even smell like smoke. And so they had not been completely untouched by Nebuchadnezzar's threat. And Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing here that he'd done at the end of chapter 2. He praised the God of, a uh, God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered that anyone who said a word against their God was going to be punished. They're going to be torn limb from limb. Here he goes again. They're going to be torn limb from limb. You know, he starts his bully talk all over again. And so once again, he comes out sort of on God's side as a result of this because his arrogance had been shown up for what it was and God's faithfulness has been shown up for what it is. 
and his faithful people were vindicated. Well, we're not talking about this just to find out what happened a long time ago. What do we learn from this about being a faithful minority in our society? Because we, we are becoming more and more of a minority of faith all the time. So what do we learn about that from what we read in Daniel chapter 3? Lesson number one is this. Evil never gives up. Evil never gives up, and neither can we. Daniel and his friends seem to have won the day by the end of chapter 2, but the forces of evil weren't finished. They never are. They never are. Do you remember when Jesus was tempted? Forty days and forty nights in the wilderness. All those great promises that Satan made to him. You know, you can turn stones into bread. You can jump off the pinnacle of the temple. There'll be film at 11. Everybody will be impressed. You won't need to go to the cross. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said over and over, same, reflecting the same attitude as these three men in Daniel 3. It is written. It is written. And he just tells them what God has said. Not going to do any of that. Because of what God has said. And at the end of those 40 days, Luke's gospel said, and the devil departed until an opportune time. He wasn't anywhere near finished with Jesus. You and I may survive trials and we may survive temptations, but count on it. They won't be the last. He will be back. That's why believers in Christ will always face opposition and have to always be ready for it. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We need to hear that today. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when people slander you for your faith. Don't be surprised when people try to manipulate you because of your faith. Don't be surprised when they try to drive you away from their faith, your faith. Don't be surprised when they try to enact rules that make it difficult to practice your faith. Don't be surprised, Peter says, as though something strange were happening to you. This is our portion in the world. Don't be surprised and don't be caught off guard when evil opposes your faith. Expect it. Expect it and learn how to respond to it. And here's the second lesson. Although evil never gives up, we never have to give in. We never have to give in to, to evil. I started out by asking, what do you do when the idol maker has power over you? What do you do when the idol maker is your boss? What do you do when the idol maker is the school? What do you do when the idol maker is the government or some arm of it? What do you do? The answer from the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is simple. You remain faithful even if it means suffering the consequences. What did Jesus say in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34? If anyone would be my disciple... And that's what we all strive to be. Do this. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, I think we've never taken that very literally. I think we've never taken that very literally, especially the cross part. But I think we should, don't you? Don't you think Jesus intended it 
to be taken literally. It's certainly the pattern that he set. It's what we see in the, in the reply of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were threatened. Our God is able, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. We are willing to suffer the consequences. That same theme is reflected in the words of Peter and John in the book of Acts when they were threatened by the Jewish authorities for preaching in Jesus' name. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It's kind of like what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. We have no need to answer you in this matter. This is a done deal. And one chapter later, next 5 and verse 29, they were threatened again. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. And they went right on with their preaching. It reminds me of something John Wesley once said. He said, give me 100 men who fear nothing but God and hate nothing but sin. And we will change the world. Fear nothing but God, hate nothing but sin, and will change the world. When that describes the church today, we will not only survive as a people, we will change the world. To do that, we have, have to have absolutely trust, absolute trust that our God is able to do whatever needs to be done and be ready to pay the price of faithfulness. And we're only going to do that if we've begun with that initial commitment of faith, submitting ourselves to God's grace and power to be forgiven of our sins and by God's grace and power being sustained in living for Christ and if need be in dying for him, for the one who died for you. If you haven't yet made that commitment, do so today. Stand firm. Our God is able. Let's stand and sing. I'm not ashamed to 